The words that Jesus used to greet his disciples in that locked room, peace be with you, that was a greeting they knew. They used it every day, shalom aleichem in Hebrew. That's still a greeting that's used by Jewish people. But when the resurrected Jesus said it, it was more than just a polite hello. Peace was with them. Peace was between them and their God. Peace existed among themselves. So peace be with you also, friends. Amen. Our gospel reading this morning takes place across a week's time. The first portion happens on Easter itself, the day that Jesus came out of his tomb. The rest of our reading, Thomas's part, takes place today, you could say, one week after Easter. And Thomas is an interesting character in early Christianity. He's only recorded speaking three times in the Bible, here and then also in John chapters 11 and 14. His greatest impact on the early church sort of comes through his missionary work in India. Thomas is recorded as having begun seven churches there before his martyrdom in 72 AD. But in our Western Christian tradition, unfortunately, we don't remember all that about Thomas often. We mostly remember the this little story about Thomas and remember him as doubting Thomas. And this story is recorded for us to be able to consider our own doubts. Right? We want to put ourselves in Thomas's shoes. We want to acknowledge our own heart's struggles with faith. We want to hear Jesus' gentle rebuke of Thomas's words as words that Jesus directs at our own hearts as well. But just like there's so much more to Thomas's life than that doubting Thomas story, there's so much more to this text than just the, the doubts that Thomas had. What we get around Thomas's story in this section of the Gospel of John is a profound teaching on the essence of Christianity. And as we look at then this text this morning, we're going to look particularly at the first few verses from 19 to 23, and then the latter portion from verse 29 to the end. When Jesus greeted his disciples that evening, he showed them his hands, marked by the nails, his side, pierced by that Roman spear to make sure that he was dead. And then Luke's gospel includes the additional detail for us that Jesus ate food with his disciples in their presence. Jesus wanted the disciples to be convinced he was truly bodily alive again. So he let them poke him. He, he ingested food in their presence. And after he convinced them, he repeated his greeting, peace be with you. And again, it meant still more than simply hello. He wanted them to have peace. He wanted their doubts to be answered. He wanted their fears soothed. He wanted their worries rebuked. They had locked themselves in that room because they were afraid that they might be up on crosses next. At any moment, they expected the Jewish leaders to be pounding on their door, Roman soldiers peeking in their windows. But Jesus' words, peace be with you, made this clear to them. They had no reason to fear. Death had been defeated. It was Jesus' resurrection which led Thomas, years later, to get on a boat to India and face a martyr's death because that had simply lost its frightening aspect to him. Death wasn't, death still isn't something that we actively seek out, but death had been proven to be something entirely under God's control so Jesus' disciples could go out with his message in peace. And that's what Jesus tells them. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. How was Jesus sent by the Father? He was sent to share God's word with the world, recognizing that he would die as he did so. And the disciples were sent in the same way. They were sent to share God's word with the world, and they were to recognize that they would also die. Most of them, the twelve apostles, as far as we know, died as martyrs, like Thomas. 
John, according to some traditions, is the only one who died naturally. But the disciples also went out like Jesus in this way. Jesus went to his mission with the promise of resurrection. The disciples were sent out by Jesus as he had been sent by his Father to share God's word, recognizing the reality of death, confident in the resurrection promise. Then Jesus does something interesting, verse 22. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus is entrusting something big to his disciples here. We need to talk about what the forgiveness of sins is. And first we need to talk about what sin is. Sin is the inherited state of the human heart. It's described in the Bible in various ways. It's an alienation, a separation from God. It's an inborn attitude of me-first selfishness. It's natural hostility between every person and one another, every person and God. That inherited sin described in those various ways is what brings forth what we might call actual sins. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 15, gives a nice example of how this flows. He says, For out of the heart come murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. All of these things are sins. All of them come from the natural human heart. God is perfect. God is holy. God does not and cannot sin. And God cannot be in the presence of sin. We are born with sin and the sins we commit in life confirm that fact. We are estranged from God when our lives begin through our sin, and we prove that we deserve estrangement over the course of our lives, and there's nothing we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is God dealing with this problem. Sin deserves punishment, and our sin was punished, but the punishment was taken by Jesus on his cross. Both the Hebrew and the Greek words for forgiveness have a root meaning of a burden being placed elsewhere, of an item, an object, a load being shifted from one position into another. And that's true in English also. We don't tend to notice this because we're so used to this word forgive. We hear that and we we sort of theologically, philosophically understand what that means, but we miss the, the, the picture, the simple picture in those English words. Forgive originally meant something like to give forth to take from an object or a thing from one position and hand it over to another. It could even be used in the sense of remove. Jesus grants to his disciples the privilege of forgiving, removing sin as the obstacle that stands between any person and their Father in heaven. This is an awesome power. Jesus speaks of this power, this privilege, in two other places. Matthew chapters 16 and 18 feature extended discussions on what Jesus briefly speaks here as he breathes out on his disciples. And in one of those extended discourses in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus gives this privilege a name. He's speaking to the disciples and he tells them that they will possess the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And from that discussion in Matthew 16, this privilege that Jesus grants to his disciples is given this name, the ministry 
of the keys. Administering the keys is the right of every Christian. When Christians gather together as a church, they call certain representatives into the public office of ministry. Pastors are the particular Christians called to administer these keys by expositing scripture and sharing God's law gospel message with that gathered group. But this privilege isn't reserved to those public ministers. When Jesus gave the disciples who were his chosen ministers in the church this privilege, he breathed out the Holy Spirit on them. But Peter, one of those ministers, preached to the crowd in the first reading we heard this morning from Acts chapter 2, and he told them that through the gospel message, they would also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the same thing that Jesus breathed out on those 12 apostles assembled in that locked room. What Peter is telling these new believers to whom he preached on Pentecost is that they will share in the privilege of administering these keys as well, because they also have received the Holy Spirit. Just like any key, these keys do two things. They lock and unlock. They bind and they loose. Christians, as they administer the keys of God's kingdom, either forgive or they hold sin in place. They don't remove it. They don't hand it over. This is an awesome privilege. And when I say awesome, I mean that word in the meaning it originally had, right? Just as we thought about a moment ago, the, the root meaning, the original meaning of forgive, I want us to think about what the, the root meaning, the original meaning of awesome is. It's This is a privilege that should inspire awe. Not, not awesome in the way that we use it today, oh, that's so cool, that's great, but awesome in the sense that I ought to quake, to tremble, as I'm given these keys. I ought to be very careful how I think about them, how I use them. I need guidance as I'm given such an awesome privilege. And Christ has guidance for us. In the other extended discourse on these keys from Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus talks about these keys, Peter immediately comes to him with a question. So Jesus, you've given us these keys that forgive sin or hold sin in place, so when do I get to lock the door? Uh, Matthew 18, 21, Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? What's the limit at which my generosity expires? To answer Peter's question, Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 tells a story, and we call this story the parable of the unmerciful servant. In Jesus' story, there's a king and a servant of this king. This servant has incurred a debt to his master of somewhere between four and nine billion dollars, depending on how exactly you work out the exchange rates from then to now. And Jesus tells us that this king is ready to sentence his servant to hard labor for life, ready to sell that servant's family in the slave market to make some kind of recompense for his loss. But the man pleads for forgiveness. He begs, the king hears him, and he cancels the entire debt. He lets the man go free. You have to imagine this man leaving the king's throne room, right? Just on cloud nine, his feet barely touching the ground. But on his way out, he bumps into another servant who owes him some money. Not a small amount. Something like $11,000 would be a rough approximation. We're talking about a significant portion of a year's salary. 
And so this first servant, who has just been forgiven his debt, throws his debtor up against the wall, demands that he be repaid, sends the second man into prison when the money isn't immediately produced. Other servants see this. They're shocked. They go to the king. He's furious. He calls the first man back in. You wicked servant, he says. I canceled all your debt because you begged me. Should you not have had mercy like mine? And the king sends the first man off to jail, first for the torturer to have at him, then to hard labor for the rest of his miserable life. That story teaches us about our handling of the kingdom keys. The keys are not ours to be used as befits our good pleasure. Christians are not lords of their own castles, able to choose whom they will allow to enter. Christians are doorkeepers at the palace of a gracious king, a king who forgives debts, a king who seats the unrighteous at his banquet table, but who gets locked out then. Because Jesus intends for his disciples to use the keys in both ways. He intends for forgiveness to be announced. He also intends for it to be withheld appropriately. From whom? Well, short answer, sinners. It's a problem. Again, that's every last one of us. Every person is a sinner. But to some sinners, however, we as Christians are told here to announce the forgiveness of sins. To other sinners, we withhold that announcement. When? We read from 1 John chapter 1 this morning, and that gave us something of a framework to operate with here. John wrote this, which we read. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Those are words we use almost every other week as our opening worship dialogue. You'll notice that we use them today. What John says here leads us to understand when the binding key needs to be used. It's used on those who claim to be without sin. When someone who claims to have faith in Jesus refuses to acknowledge their own sin, John says the truth is not in that person. The same John who wrote that letter called 1 John wrote the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, the account of Jesus' life recorded by John, John reports Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. When John says then in his letter, the truth is not in such a person, he's saying, Jesus is not in that person. That person is actively separated from Jesus. To have faith in Jesus is to admit this truth. I am a sinner who actively, daily, needs a Savior. And any way we try to dilute that truth separates us from Jesus. How do we dilute that truth? Well, in many ways, we like to downplay certain sins, usually the ones that we're prone to, and highlight sins to which others are prone. We say something to ourselves like, well, I might have a pride problem, but at least I'm no drunk. I might have an addiction to pornography, but at least I'm not a cheater. We claim to be without sin when we make this idea a part of our theology. What Jesus paid on someone else's behalf through his cross was greater than what he paid on my behalf. There's another way we claim to be without sin. We reject the idea that some sins are sins. And we can find plenty of voices that will help us do that. We can find someone who's going to assert a biblical justification for just about any sexual sin imaginable. We can find someone who's going to excuse our loveless tongues so long as our doctrine is correct. Here's what we have to understand. 
The binding key is not something that gets used on the world at large. We don't walk, walk the streets of our neighborhoods waiting to find out who's not a Christian and tell them, well, you're not forgiven. The keys are to be used by Christians, among Christians. The keys govern our interactions with fellow servants of the king. The keys are our means for dealing with sin in the church. And we use the binding key with great care because that's how Jesus instructs the disciples to do so. Before telling that story, the parable that he tells to Peter, when Jesus is discussing this privilege, first he tells the disciples, before you use that binding key, you go to your brother or sister, your fellow Christian, your fellow servant of the king who has sinned, and you talk one-on-one, -on -one, and you go doing that, praying that they acknowledge their sin, praying that they hear you and ask for forgiveness, praying that you have the opportunity to use the loosing key. If they don't, you still don't use the binding key. First, you bring another Christian with you, and you speak with them again. And going there, you pray for that same result, that they hear you out, that they acknowledge their sin, that you get to use the loosing key. And up to this point, you still do everything you can to keep this private, because you love that person. You want to protect their reputation. But if you've gone to them alone, then you've gone to them with a brother or sister and they won't hear you, it's, it is time then to bring this matter to the church. And if the church's loving admonition, if their family's loving admonition does not change this person's heart, then, then, with tears and heartache, you bind their sin to that person because they're already clinging to it. The binding key, we learn, is not used willy-nilly. The binding key is not something I ever use in the privacy of my own heart. If I hear Jesus' words in my reading here, if you don't forgive, they're not forgiven, right, and think, hoo, 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 I have some kind of special secret power that not even God will overrule, I can expect the same eternal result as the unmerciful servant. That binding key is only and ever used by the assembled church. But the other key comes with no such guidelines. We are not told when someone feels sorrow for their sin, we confirm it personally. Then we confirm it with another Christian. Then we confirm it with the church. Then we pronounce forgiveness. Right? We don't go through the same steps. The loosing key is the default. The door to the kingdom is unlocked. Jesus' death tore the temple curtain in half, opened up the way into God's presence, and that is ever and always the first message off a Christian's lips. We hold out to everyone the same promise which Peter did at the end of his sermon on Pentecost. This promise is for all whom God will call. At the end of his conversation with Thomas, Jesus says that while Thomas has believed because he's seen Jesus, there are other people who will come to believe without having seen him. How? Through forgiveness. And this is where that first part and the last part of our reading come together. It is the gospel, the message that announces forgiveness, the loosing key to Jesus' kingdom, which will bring people who have not seen Jesus to believe in Jesus. 
simply because it's so shocking. It's so different. It is so out of this world because it's not of this world. The gospel is put into our hearts and pushed off our tongues by the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus continues to breathe out on his church. And that's our privilege as the church living after Easter in this world, not of this world. We get to use the keys and open the kingdom door. Amen.